Great. Well, welcome um, to LSE. Thank you all very much for coming. Many of you will have noticed that I am not Nicola Lacey. Um, for those of you who haven't noticed, um, I'm not. Um, Nicola Lacey, unfortunately, can't be with us this evening. She's had a family emergency. So um, I'm Emily Jackson. I'm a colleague of Nikki's um, in the Law Department at LSE. And I'm really delighted to welcome you all um, to the Law Department's first public lecture of this academic year. And I'm particularly delighted to welcome back, because I know you've spoken for us many times before, Shami Chakrabarti. Um, one very, very brief um, piece of housekeeping. If there's a fire alarm, it means there's a fire. And we will leave this building and um, go, the fire assembly point is the other side of the road, just on the corner of Lincoln's and Fields. So we all need to um, know where to go if there's a fire alarm. So just very briefly, by way of introduction, Shami Chakrabarti is one of um, the Law Department at LSE's most distinguished um, alumni. After graduating from LSE, Shami qualified as a barrister and worked as in-house counsel at Liberty, um, where she was director for 13 years and then... 12-ish. 12 12 <laughs> and then um, last year, Shami became shadow attorney general. Shami is formerly also Chancellor of the University of Essex and of Oxford Brookes University and is a visiting professor in practice uh, in the Law Department here at LSE. Now, Shami's had a very rich and distinguished career, but um, the point of today's, this evening's conversation is, first and foremost, to talk about the role of Shadow Attorney General. Many of us will have heard of um, this role, but actually know very, very little about what it involves and what the Shadow Attorney General and the Attorney General might do. So I'm going to ask Shami some questions about um, that role, and then there'll be plenty of time um, for questions from you. For those Twitter users um, in the audience, the hashtag um, is, for this event is uh, LSE Chakrabarti. If you are tweeting, please could I ask you to put your phones on silent. So this event is being recorded and we hope to be able to make it available as a podcast. So, um, to kick off, Jamie, perhaps I could start by asking you to talk us through a typical day in the life of the Shadow Attorney General. Good. Well, well um, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, it's, um, this meeting is quite far from the Brighton Centre. Um, um, you know, um, and forgive me if I'm a little I'm flagging slightly after you know some crazy days at Labour Party conference which are not completely typical but they're you know one part of the experience maybe I should um, contrast um, the role of the attorney himself or herself with, with, with perhaps what I'm experiencing at the moment advising a government in waiting rather than an actual government my first uh, experience of the, the office of the Attorney General was many years ago when I was a young government lawyer in the Home Office. Um, and that was a long time ago. That was um, from 1996 until 2001. So during that time as a government lawyer, I, I advised uh, governments of both persuasions. Now, I was a lawyer in the Home Office, but I was aware of this entity called the Office of the Attorney General, um, and I was most aware of it in its legal advisory role 
essentially because when legal advice became important enough or contentious enough, particularly between different government departments who have their own lawyers and are sometimes at odds with each other about the law as they can be about the policy or the priorities, the Attorney-General um, was and is the ultimate referee of legal advice within government and that's an incredibly important part of the attorney's job um, because there's so much law now um, in, in modern government it, that, you know, there's, there's international law there's law affecting obviously warfare there's human rights law at home and abroad there's for the time being and, and for a while yet European law there's a, there's a lot of law that um, that government departments need to um, be on the right side of. And as I say, the attorney is the ultimate legal advisor to, um, to the government. In addition to that, there are some other functions that are a bit more like executive functions, supervising prosecutors uh, like the CPS and the Serious Fraud Office. Um, and there uh, are residual public interest roles uh, relating to referring undue lenient sentences, um, and um, and uh, referring um, potential inquests um, to, to, to the High Court. There's, I think, a, resi there's a, a, a residual role in, in charity law as well. So that adds just a, a, another, an, another dimension to the role. And that, that residual public interest role probably, to some extent, um, dates back to the, the morphing of the original role of the attorney as the king's lawyer in court to this new stage, now the early part of the 21st century, where, where really you are principally an advisor to government. Now, as the shadow, um, which I've been now for just under a year, obviously we're not in government. So there isn't the awesome responsibility that will come with being the ultimate referee for legal advice to, to government. But I still think it's a very important responsibility and opportunity to be the legal advisor to the government in waiting um, when you know, shadow cabinet colleagues in the various departmental briefs are shaping a vision and shaping a manifesto and shaping the detail of policy pledges that we hope to honour very soon. Um, also, from a day-to-day -day point of view, it's quite important to me that, um, that all of our messaging and our policy development is imbued with respect for the rule of law. And we, you know, we saw the appalling situation um, on the other side of the aisle, and I, you know, I don't want to be too partisan because I think it's important that an attorney and a shadow attorney are, are lawyers first and politicians second. I think that's important. But, but the, the political and media response to the Miller judgment was a, was a real low in, um, in British legal and political life. And that's not something I ever want to see mirrored or repeated um, on our watch. Um, and, and so it's really important to me that you know, when people are potentially disappointed with, with court judgments or... Uh, appointments or whatever it is that you know that I'm there to say, but we respect the independent judiciary and the rule of law, and that's what, what we're going to do in opposition and in government because because it is 2017 and there have been too many years, and it 
hasn't just been one political party. There's been too many years of denigrating lawyers, legal aid, particular lawyers in particular, um, and, and even the senior judiciary, and we saw the nadir uh, over Miller. And then just a final point, um, there's a lot of legal policy. There's a lot of law in all the policy areas, um, because there's lots of legislation and there are lots of human rights and other legal issues, but there's also legal policy, um, particularly in the, um, in the Justice Department brief, in the Home Department brief, some in the... Um, and some in other areas and it's um, really important to be part of that conversation it's just not realistic um, at, at this moment in, in British politics and communications to sit in an ivory tower in the Attorney General's chambers or the Shadow Attorney General's chambers and, and wait for Shadow Cabinet colleagues to send you perfumed instructions wrapped in white or pink ribbons about whether something they're going to say or propose is a good idea, let alone lawful. So my view, um, and this is a more general view about what I think modern lawyers have to be, is they have to be in the room, they have to be in the conversation, they've got to be um, helping with the with the development of legal policy as well as the delivery of legal advice. So that was a very long and rambling answer. I hope I haven't sent you to sleep. But no, not at all. That was, a, that, was, that was a really good canter through what the duties involved. One thing that I, I don't think I've ever quite understood is what the relationship is of the Attorney General with the Secretary of State for Justice, the Lord Chancellor. How does that relationship Well, work? I suspect that... Um, I suspect and I know, actually, that that will depend a lot on the people and the politics involved. So um, let's, let's put it like this. Richard Bergen, who is my colleague, who is the shadow Lord Chancellor stroke Justice Secretary, A, is a lawyer, which I think now probably needs to happen going forward. We've had an experiment in recent years, and I tried to be open-minded about that experiment when it started, I think, with... Was it with Chris Grayling? Yeah, it was, that was the you know that was the, the breach of the tradition, and we're going to have a you know a, a lay person in that department. And you know, they, you know, they, I was prepared to you know to say you know a, a non-lawyer who respects the rule of law and takes advice and goes on that journey might be able to do it, but it's not gone well. Richard Bergen, however, who I hope will soon be the next Lord Chancellor Stroke Justice Secretary, is a lawyer, but also a lawyer who has worked in the public interest sector, has, has delivered legal aid advice to vulnerable people. You know, he cares about legal aid from his own experience, but he also cares about human rights law and, and you know, respecting judicial pronouncements, etc. So my relationship with him is fantastic and, um, and it's, it's also the nature of his personality. That it's, a, it's a relationship of equals and not a relationship between on the one hand someone who's about to captain a mighty department of state responsible for the prison system and the prison budgets on the one hand and a sort of lowly legal advisor on the other. That's because of his approach to, to the politics and the policy and, and, and the other and going along with that we, I've got I think six or seven lawyer colleagues in the shadow cabinet and I think that makes a big difference Emily Thornbury, lawyer Keir Starmer, lawyer 
Andy McDonnell, Transport, Lawyer, Richard Bergen, Lawyer, Becky Long-Bailey, Business, Lawyer. And I think there might be somebody else as well, but I, uh, forgive me if I've forgotten them. Um, it's, like, it's like the leader's speech, you know, who was in and who was out, you know. Um, I don't mean it like that. Sort of, and that, I feel, really helps. So there isn't a, a sort of lack of understanding or empathy um, with what I'm trying to do. But I suspect in other governments and shadow governments, it's probably been very different from time to time. Do you think when the, just as a follow-up on that, do you think when the um, Lord Chancellor hasn't been a lawyer, um, the Attorney General should have played more of a, a, a directive role? Um, arguably, arguably. Um, I mean, I don't want to um, criticise Jeremy Wright because I don't think the relationship between the attorney and the shadow attorney should be as jousty as it must be between other, um, other principles and shadows because I think our, ultimately our primary responsibility is advice and sometimes to be the only lawyer in the room. So I'm not going to sort of you know, have a pop at, at Jeremy Wright, who's the Attorney General, but um, perhaps he should have stepped up and spoken out when... Um, the, Lord Ch- the former Lord Chancellor, Liz Truss, was so mealy-mouthed, not even mealy-mouthed, was, was really derelict in duty um, over the media attacks on the judiciary post-Miller. But, um, but anyway, I, th- I think, you know, if we have our way, Richard Bergen will be the Lord Chancellor and then he'll be very happy to, um, to perform that role. But yes, of course you have, to, you have a duty, you have an ethical, professional, political duty to to fill that void if these values are not being, um, are not being defended. But, but ideally, you're part of a government where lawyers and non-lawyers alike would understand the importance of an independent judiciary that isn't being vilified. Thank you. There's another um, legal officer, office of state, and I, I wonder whether you could tell us about the relationship with, with that, and that's on a solicitor general. So how does the solicitor general role, solicitor general role fit with... The Attorney General. It's a, role. I think if I mean, there, there's probably someone in the room who knows better. It's always dangerous to come to the LSE and start pontificating um, about law or politics or history um, in particular. So I'm going to please correct me in due course if I get this wrong. Um, whatever it technically was in the past, in recent years, it's effectively a deputy, um, which. Which means that you know the solicitor, which means we're a team, um, and that's really helpful to me because I, of course, am not in the Commons. So Nick Thomas Simmons, who's an extraordinarily fine um, MP and lawyer and political historian, actually, I, I recommend his his two biographies, one of Bevan and one of Attlee, and he was an academic. He was a historian before he became a barrister, before he became an MP. Um, He is someone who may or may not be known to you, but he is someone to watch. He's someone from this this, um, magical, in my view, 2015 intake in the Commons who is going to go a a very long way in British politics and still only in his mid-30s. So we're basically a team, but he he does Attorney General's questions in the House of Commons. So he's effectively shadowing Jeremy Wright when it's Attorney General's questions in the Commons. And then over the advisory stuff, we work very much, we work very much um, together. 
And, and being a shadow, you told us something about that. It's about getting, in a sense, getting ready for government. Do, do you have much sort of day-to-day contact with Jeremy Wright, with the Attorney General? Um, not day-to-day because, you know, we're obviously not going to talk to each other about the advice that we're giving to... Um, um, and, but, and also, I don't think it's appropriate to have the jousty relationship that you must have between Chancellor and Chancellor and Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition, you know. Um, so, so, so we have met uh, around particular issues and, and at particular times, and it's very much on the basis of, 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 of two... It's, it's a respectful relationship of two lawyers in the way that you might have between, you know, two in-house lawyers in... In, in, in business where there's a dispute or where there isn't a dis- dispute it's um, and he's take, yeah he's, he's very kindly taken me into his confidence about a couple of things where appropriate but it isn't it isn't a daily discourse would there ever be conceivable circumstances in which you and he would issue joint advice or is that just inconceivable I th- think I can't I can't imagine. I can't imagine why that um, would need be the case, but I can. What I could imagine is, if, if for example, hypothetically, um, I ever thought or that the, the as shadow that the Attorney General was being given a hard time by his or her colleagues and was being briefed against for giving their advice always being undermined um, for giving their advice, then I would happily um, you know, speak in, in solidarity because I think that's really important. But that, wouldn't, that would be, in a sense, more political than, than legal in a way. I think you've answered this question implicitly, but does the Attorney General have to be a qualified lawyer? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I was prepared to be open-minded about the Lord Chancellor um, and I was open-minded, but perhaps I was naive, I don't know. But that, it hasn't worked out well so far in that particular experiment, and we're not currently planning to put a, a non-lawyer uh, shadow Lord Chancellor. But, do you, you know, but you could make an argument that you know, the Lord Chancellor has this massive responsibility for managing the prison system and so on. You don't necessarily need to be a lawyer to do that, but the attorney has to be a lawyer. Right, thank you. How important um, is the role of Attorney General to the constitutional structure of the UK? Where, where does it sort of fit in terms of our constitution? Well, I our constitution, goodness me, that curate's egg that is our constitution. I think, um, I don't want to be pompous about it, but I think it's incredibly important because of being the principal legal advisor to, to, to government and, and even because of these residual roles like the supervisory role in relation to, to, to prosecutors and, and so on. But I think probably the advisory role is hugely significant because you could be giving advice about war, and, you know, military interventions and um, the interrogation of prisoners. And goodness me, you, you know, um, you don't need me to tell you how significant that can be and the cost of getting that wrong to legitimacy in politics and, and, and in government. So, um, as I say, I don't want to be pompous about it, but, but I think it's incredibly constitutionally 
important. Thank you. Um, many of us will have heard of the US Attorney General, um, Jeff Sessions, who was appointed um, by Donald Trump after he sacked the previous incumbent, Sally Yates, rather quickly after taking office. Is that role in, completely different in the US from the role here? I don't think it's as different as some people suggest in the end. In the end, you, you know, as the leader, appoint somebody to be your lawyer. Of course, there'll be some detailed differences, but I, I think, um, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think I can, <coughs> I can criticise President Trump till the cows come home, on so many fronts. But you know, putting your person in as a political appointment is. It's kind of how it's going to be, and in a sense, that's how it is in our system too. Um, I think, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a funny thing because you have to you have to be a lawyer first, but you also have to be part of the political team and a trusted in-house lawyer. So I think it's right that it's a political appointment, but if your legal advice is going to be worth the paper it's written on or the words that are spoken, you have to a have that ethical commitment and remember what you're there to do. And B, I think, take advice from outside lawyers with particular expertise uh, in private practice. That's the way to kind of hold that, that potential tension together, I think. So are you doing that in the shadow role, taking advice from... Um... Absolutely. Where, where there's, you know, there's nothing... Again, this is the challenge of any in-house lawyer, I would argue, whether they're the... Oh whether they're the in-house counsel for a multinational corporation um, or to government, the challenge is to, to consult outside because I think it's dangerous to get to a level of seniority and involvement where you start compromising or, make, or frankly, making it up. I don't know about you, but I have met... Um, senior lawyers senior in-house lawyers um, or people that were lawyers and then become chief executives or whatever it is who think that they can just keep making it up and haven't actually checked a judgement or a law book in some years and um, or just don't have the humility to realise that you have to go for specialist advice and consultation and, and bring more people and, and that's not going to be me um, and so I've already several times several times in the past year um, gone to you know outside council on particular specialist issues because I don't want to be making it up I don't want to be one of those senior lawyers who just you know sits around the room and says it'll all be fine um, you know it's very very easily done and not not just in politics I think Thank you. Are there tensions between the legal duties as Shadow Attorney General and your political role as a member of the Shadow Cabinet? No, I think not. I think, I think you have to be in the room. The idea that you're not in the room is, and that you can have an impact if you're not in the room, um, I think that's, that's la-la land in this, in this day and age. So I think... Um, well, I, I, I've, I've described what I think is the way to handle that potential tension. But to not be in the room would be... You, you won't get the opportunity, if you're not in the room, to build up the trust and confidence of your colleagues. 
Um, but equally, you just won't hear the conversations that you need to hear. And sometimes non-lawyers don't know when they need legal advice. It's, it's a, I hate to quote Donald Rumsfeld, um, but it is a kind of unknown, unknown scenario. Do you, do you, you can see my point. You can have people talking about all sorts of policies that they want to um, formulate and all sorts of actions that they want to deliver, and they might not see that there's a potential issue over human rights or international trade law or you know, uh, state aid or what it, whatever it happens to be. Thank you. Just, you've, you've, you've kind of mentioned this about in relation to the shadow cabinet, which I wanted to ask you just to close a few questions about lawyers in politics more generally. Um, and it sounds as though there are lots of lawyers in the shadow cabinet, but my perception, and it could be, um, it could be that I, I'm not right about this, but certainly when I was young and becoming politically um, engaged and aware, there seemed to be an awful lot of MPs who uh, had been uh, lawyers and had been barristers in particular. That seems to, there seem to be fewer um, lawyers in, um, in Parliament these days. I don't know whether that's I true. haven't. I, th I think you certainly were right in that trend for a while. Yeah. Um, what I haven't done is the recent analysis of the numbers um, um, because I do know that in our recent intakes on the Labour benches... And I think some of the recent intakes of the, on the Tory benches do. I think there might be a resurgence, but, um, but I think historically, I think you're right. It was very, very commonplace mm -hmm. some years ago for, you know, for barristers in particular, but not exclusively barristers, to, to become MPs, sometimes even continuing in private practice simultaneously. You know, um, but, and, and obviously there are, there are good things about that like being able to read legislation uh, as well as pass it um, and, you know, thinking in a certain logical way and, and, and maybe good advocacy. But, but there are dangers too. Um, I think um, the flip side of the coin would be to, um, to not realise that it's a different job and you have to learn new skills and, and not think you know it all just because you've been a very successful or senior lawyer, you are entering a different profession and you need to have a little humility and, and learn the ropes of that um, as well and, and not speak legalese but speak, attempt to speak plain English to people and, and sit down with your constituents and, and, and do political interviews and, and take the slings and arrows. It's, it, it's not an identical job and I think that you know, the lawyer politicians who are best at it on the one hand, have the humility to know it's a different job and try and learn the different job, but also have the humility, to, um, not after years and years of being in the Commons and not having practice, to pontificate about what's happening in the courts um, when they actually haven't been in the courts or haven't been in the police station or whatever it is um, for 20 or 30 years. So I think, as with, as with most, most things in life, a little humility in transition and always is probably a good idea. Last question for me, and then I'll throw it open to the floor. But we know that um, people, people in politics get an enormous amount of uh, abuse these days. Would you encourage our um, graduates, our students, to think about a political career, or would you want to put them off? No, we'd never put them Of course, <laughs> how, could I, how could I put them off? You know, um, the, the abuse is an issue. Um, it, it's... 
It's really striking when Amnesty International, with all the problems that Amnesty International has to monitor on the planet, decides as a priority to conduct an evaluation on you know, the 2017 UK general election and the online abuse of candidates in that election. That is a sad day indeed that they chose that because they thought it was important and necessary. And it's an even sadder day for me um, personally and professionally that my dear friend, our next Home Secretary, Diane Abbott, um, was found by Amnesty to have received half of all the abuse. But what am I going to say, that, that young women or young black women shouldn't go into politics? Are we going to be chased, are we going to be chased away from the democratic space? Of, co of course not. So I think we need to do more to tackle... Um, you know, I'm all for free speech, but not for hideous abuse of people. You know, I'm and when I talk about hideous abuse, I'm talking about death threats and rape threats and, you know the kind of abuse that would be completely unacceptable in any university or workplace and, and frankly on the street or in the pub should not be acceptable because they're politicians or because it's online. So we've got to think about that as a, as a, as a polity and as a community. But of course I'm not going to discourage people, and women in particular, because you know, thanks to all women shortlists and the Labour Party, we, we're now... you know approaching, what is it, 32, 35%, 32%, 35% of women members of parliament, but we need to get to 50%. So, um, and, and lawyers have a huge contribution to make to lawmaking, as well as, de as delivering um, the law. And the one final comment um, that I would make is this denigration of law and lawyers and legal aid and the judiciary um, can end with us, with a, with a Labour government, if I have anything to do with it. And, and with that too, the arms race on, on law and order, this competition to be the toughest, you know, the toughest on, toughest on crime or the toughest on immigration or, you know, this, this arms race has to end. And I believe that um, with, with Jeremy as Prime Minister and Diane as Home Secretary and Richard as Justice Secretary and, and yes, me as Attorney, I think we've got an opportunity to do that. Thank you very much for your frank and interesting answers. I certainly know a lot more about the Office of, Office of Attorney General than I did an hour ago, so thank you for that. I'd like to open it up to the, to the floor. If you could keep your questions succinct and, um, and tell us who you are and where you're from. And if possible, I might try and take questions in groups of of three to round them up. So I can see, see a couple immediately there. So you first, the man in, man in France. In we might, the might try and do sort of gender yes, and we'll try. balance yes. as well. Okay. Exactly. Um, th thank you very much. Um, I, I'd just like to ask you on the bit about um, e extreme abuse and you feel sanctions against that. Um, and things like death threats and extreme racial abuse. How do you feel about um, the leader of the opposition um, shaking the hands of Gerry Adams? Because I would point out, Gerry Adams didn't just issue death threats. He ordered them carried out. Thank you. We'll take the question immediately behind, and then I think, yes, you, you, you down at front, and I'll get you for next time. 
Yes. Hi, good evening. Yes, thank you for a very um, uh, insightful um, insight into, into the role of the Shadow Attorney General. I've got a question. You referred to um, the abuse of, of judges by the press and by the public more generally as enemies of the people, and we all hated those headlines. I think I hated them for, you know, for just failing to understand really the, the legal questions and the constitutional questions facing the Supreme Court. Do you think that these criticisms are of judges' integrity and independence and that kind of thing are reflective of a wider um, lack of constitutional and legal education. They already say it's, a, it's, a, you know, that it's severely lacking in the US. Um, but do you think that the, what the public should have more easily, should have, with a tiny bit of legal education, appreciated that while it was a politically charged context, the questions, the legal questions, uh, were really what it was all about? Thank you. I'll take one more question down here. Thank you. Um, I had two, actually. Thank you, Shami, very much for um, uh, coming here and talking to us. Uh, the first question I had was, um, how do you differentiate between uh, freedom of speech and abuse? What is your personal opinion on where the boundary lies? Uh, and the second question I had was, more general, with us leaving the European Union, do you also share the fear that maybe we will be less humane, our law will become, not our law specifically, but in general the society will become less humane? So what are your thoughts on that? Fantastic Thank you. Fantastic question. You got two in, but they were good ones. So I will let you have two, as yeah. they were good. No, because they were really good. Um, shaking hands with people you don't like or people you disagree with is, is just not comparable with with hate speech. You can have, we can have a whole separate uh, debate about sharing platforms and etc., etc., but it's a completely different thing from, um, from issuing threats to people online. So it's just not comparable. You can, have, you can have a completely different debate. Should somebody have shaken hands with X, Y, and Z? Should somebody share a platform with X, Y, and Z? Generally, I think one should... Um, in the interests of discourse and, and peacemaking, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, I, um, but that's a whole different conversation. So I, I think that that um, analogy, sir, was, was completely misconceived. Um, the enemies of the people thing and the relationship with, with legal education. Two points. Firstly, when the, newspa when the, the newspapers that chose to vilify those judges in that way first having a pop at the divisional court, was it the divisional court or the court of appeal, it was the divisional court um, having a, a really you know, that, I mean I've seen a lot of um, political and media attacks on the judiciary in this country since the mid 90s but I've rarely seen an onslaught as direct um, as that one. The newspapers that chose to do that didn't do that because of a lack of legal education. They have plenty of lawyers in their back rooms and, you know, and they're very happy, by the way, these press barons, to run to law when they need to. So let's be clear, there was no, there was no ignorance or naivety about that particular attack post-Miller. And then the attempt to intimidate the Supreme Court by then putting all the Supreme Court justices up for scrutiny and who, who's been on holiday to Italy and who's married to this person, you know, really not okay. And I happen to know 
that some people were advised by some judges, or at least one judge was advised by the police to um, vacate their home for a period. So those newspapers, those editors and those press barons don't get out of jail for naivety and a lack of legal education. That said, um, my second point is that you're right. We as a, 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 a public um, a, a need um, better legal and constitutional and human rights education. Um, and if we had, maybe the climate would not be so, you know, maybe we'd get to a place where that kind of stuff doesn't sell newspapers and, um, and triggers a greater outrage on the part of, of, of readers and viewers, whichever side of the political aisle they're on. Because I want the independence of the judiciary and fundamental rights and freedoms not to be uh, a party political issue. You would want a level of consensus about, pro about protecting judges in a democracy. Frankly, not even in a democracy. You cannot have civilization without the rule of law, let alone democracy, let alone social democracy or any uh, progressive society. So, so you're, you're completely right. We need um, better legal and human rights education. And I think the reason why we haven't had it, frankly, is that governments tend not um, to enjoy having uh, empowered critical citizens but again that is something that I think a Jeremy Corbyn led government could do differently because of his idea about democratising um, institutions in this country and empowering people free speech and abuse, great question of course um, I, would I am a great advocate of free speech and it is, you know all, I could come up with all the cliches, it's the lifeblood of democracy, so, so I'm not complaining about um, even a lot of the stuff that's directed at me. Um, you know, criticism, even heated criticism, even, you know, unfair criticism is free speech. But the abuse that, you know, the extreme abuse that I'm describing is stuff that is often illegal but it's bit, it would get policed on the street but not be policed online. So that's the first proposition. If it's illegal on the street, it is illegal online. And our <coughs> authorities need to catch up with the online world. Then there's, a second, then there's a second point, because there is some abuse that isn't criminal. right? We, we know that. And this is something that... I have, I'm supposed to plug... I'm going to plug my book now. I have a, I have a book coming out later this later this um, month um, which my son has very kindly called my crappy feminist book but, um, but it, has a, it has a different name it's called, it's called Of Women and it's, um, it's published by Alan Lane which is a penguin imprint and comes out towards the end of the month and, and I was thinking about your question for a chapter in, in that book and so I've started with the analogy proposition number one if it's, if it's criminal on the street the same language is criminal um, online. So that's broadly the proposition, isn't it? It's, it you know, it's the same law applies online and offline. But that said, sometimes the on-the-street metaphor analogy may not be the, the correct one. So, and this is something I think that we need, to, we need as a community and a polity to, to think about. There is some abuse that is not criminal, 
But if it happens in a restaurant or in a bookshop or a bar, um, the, the establishment would ask the person to leave, let alone in a university, let alone if it happened here. You know, that might... So, so there is abuse that isn't criminal abuse, that is not acceptable in, certain, in, in these spaces. So it's not the street, it's in the pub, it's in the university, it's in the bookshop. So the question, which is as much for you, particularly younger um, members of the audience who are, you know, more tech-savvy than me, the question, the, the ethical, political question, which then might become... Uh, a legislative question further on, I don't know, is should we treat a particular social media platform as the street where the only test will be does this comply with criminal law or should we treat a particular social media platform as being more akin to the shop, the pub, you know, the, 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 you know, the other smaller establishment. Now, if we... If you, if you go along with this thought experiment and you agree that maybe the social media platform is like the shop or the restaurant, then the question is, should consumers or shoppers or participants expect of the establishment um, a level of regulation that is tighter than the criminal law? Should the users of Facebook or Twitter say... Women do not need to face misogynistic and racist <coughs> abuse here. And, and if they do, we're going to go and set up a different social media platform, which is more convivial, frankly, because in that pub, you always get... You know, if the pub has a reputation for being rough, then some of us will go elsewhere. And that's the kind of thinking that I think we're entitled to explore um, at at this point in this new industrial revolution. Brexit, will it make us less humane? Not if we have, have it our way, but there's a real danger. You're completely right. And we saw that danger emerging during the referendum campaign. And after the referendum result, we saw the spike in hate crime and hate speech. Um, and that was less humane. The present government's refusal after all this time to guarantee the rights of EU nationals to stay is, a, is cruelty. It's not politics, it's cruelty. It's an absolute disgrace. And I am, forget party politics, I'm ashamed of our government for not guaranteeing the rights of people who have lived and loved and worked and contributed to this society, have left them in limbo for all of this time. So that's, that's, that's evidence that, that you're onto something. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to have a completely alternative vision under our government of what Britain's future in Europe and the world could be. And, and really, I would just, if you have time, go and have a look at Jeremy's speech to conference yesterday because he tried to set it out. And this point about we will be more or less humane, and that's all in the air. I mean, some people would like the City of London to become, um, you know, a sort of deregulated tax haven where people can come and invest their dirty money. Um, um, and that will be the way that London can compete with Frankfurt and Paris and so on. 
Um, and that is not our vision, because our vision will be a city of London that does better at regulation, um, better at, um, at, at extracting tax out of corporations, that does better, or at least as well, at workers' rights and environmental rights. And, the, uh, and why will we do that? Because we should be competing with Frankfurt and Paris and, and everywhere else with this great export called the rule of law because so many companies all over the world still choose to incorporate here. Why? Um, not because of deregulation, but because of the rule of law. Thank you. So, um, lady in black there, yes. Um, thank you very much for um, your conversation earlier. I kind of have two questions as well. Um, one is maybe a bit cheeky, but I wanted to know, can your advice be ignored is it, is it um, binding or is it purely advisory, I suppose? Um, and my second question follows on from that. Um, we're speaking about um, separating politics and law and how you are first and foremost a lawyer, but are you ever tempted, say, when you're particularly passionate about a policy, but the law is telling you this is not, this is not going to work? Do you get tempted to... To mix, to mix politics and the law, to make the politics work, and do you find that challenging, and how do you overcome those, those challenges? Thank you. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for your talk. Um, I'm just interesting, uh, interested to know what you think about um, precepts, because there are huge areas of social interaction that are governed by, everyday interaction that are governed by precepts. Um, Sorry, governed by what? I can't hear By something. precepts. By precepts? Yeah. What kind of precept? So a precept uh, being um, um, a, a, an interaction that, uh, basically an interaction that, that um, isn't, kind of, isn't regulated or isn't governed by any kind of law, but that's just kind of how people generally accept each other behave. Um, and so, um, Can you give me an example? Maybe just a norm of... Well, so, so for, uh, well, so for example, like, um, like a landlord threatening a tenant. Um, so... Um, so, so a precept would be like an unwritten rule governing behaviour. I think that okay. that's the Oxford okay. defi definition. So like a cultural norm or a social norm that isn't law, but it, uh, just an unwritten rule that governs how people interact or behave. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, for, yeah. for example, a landlord threatening a tenant, uh, and and that's. I mean, I think I've come across quite a few situations where I've been uh, threatened by a, a landlord, um, and it doesn't have to be explicit. Sometimes it's, it's tacit threats. Yeah. Sometimes it's mercurial behaviour. Um, by these uh, by these landlords who think uh, they're totally unregulated. I'm just wondering if yeah, you yeah. got into government, what you would do to, to regulate landlords. Isn't it time that um, each estate agent and each landlord had a personal identification number so that any problems could be identified and reported to a kind of a, a body or an organisation? Thank you. And there's one um, man in blue shirt in the middle. Thank you. Hi there. Um, my name's Daniel Sugarman, and I'm here from a Jewish Chronicle. Um, at Labour Party conference, a uh, rule was passed, um, a change to the Labour Party constitution by, you know, it was introduced by the Jewish Labour movement. I understand that you had a significant role in helping that to get passed, and I was wondering whether you would go into more detail about that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Can I have a go now? Because I, yes, yes. I won't retain yes. what I... Um, I'm, I'm not as young or clever as most people in the room, I'm afraid. Um, so if I go backwards, um, so to, to Daniel from the, from the JSC, um, what we've done with that particular um, sort of procedural rule 
um, is to make explicit for the first time that, um, that conduct, um, e expressions of um, hate speech and prejudice, whether it's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, misogyny, um, homophobia, etc., 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 is going to be taken extremely seriously in in the Labour Party. Now, in the past, you've always had the conduct unbecoming conduct that would bring the party into disrepute um, rule there. But what we've done is two things. One is to be explicit about these categories of behaviour. And secondly, to, um, to close a loop, a kind of really strange, odd loophole that was there before, which gave protection for people's thoughts and uh, expressions. You know, we went, there was some ridiculous little caveat that was just bad drafting from some time ago that gave you um, a protection if it was your if you were expressing your thoughts and beliefs well of course you should be able to express your thoughts and beliefs but only if they are within the Labour Party mission and, and the real point is that this isn't criminal law this is the acceptable behaviour in the British Labour Party which is supposed to be the party of equality and is the party that in government passed pretty much every equality law that we've ever had in this country. So to go back to the, you know, my earlier point about is this, is this the street or is this the restaurant, well, this is the Labour Party and we should be going for a gold standard of acceptable behaviour and we should not have to, um, we, we, can, we can afford to have standards of behaviour that are much, much better than the, than the lower bar of the criminal law. And so we've made that explicit. We've tightened up this rather strange bad drafting that was there before. And I'm really delighted to say, and I hope you'll report this, in, I hope you'll report this fairly in, in, in the Jewish Chronicle, because I'm saying this to you kind of honestly and openly, that we know that in, in the last couple of years there's been left-right civil war in the Labour Party. We know that... Um, I don't really care what your politics are. Some of your readers will be Labour supporters, some will be Conservatives and others. But what I'm really proud of is the fact that this rule change was endorsed by the entire National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, which will have people on it who are very staunchly behind Jeremy Corbyn and people who are really not and more critical. So they passed that unanimously. It had, and the leader is a member of that National Executive Committee. And then... On the conference floor, um, it was passed by 96% of the delegates. Now, I don't know whether the 4 per I haven't seen the detailed figures. I don't know whether the 4% were all votes against or some were abstentions. But I believe, having sat in the debate, I, I'm not a de I wasn't a delegate, I believe, sitting in the debate, that we would have got 100%, but from one speech that was just completely ill-informed as to the effect of the rule because that's, that one speaker said, oh, this is thought crime, and it actually wasn't at all thought crime. Um, it, it, was, it was saying, you, you know, thoughts and expressions are, you know, are fine as long as they're within the mission of the party. So there was, some, um, there was a very, very foolish, I'm afraid, and, and, 
and erroneous speech that didn't understand the legal effect of the rule change. And that probably cost me the, you know, the 4% of the delegates. Um, but I'm really, I'm really proud of that. And I will go further and say that some people have then, you know, they think they're being helpful to the party and the leadership to say, oh, we've never had an anti-Semitism problem and I've been in the party for 150 years and actually the party's not 150 years old, it's about 100 years old. Um, and I disagree with them. And I did the investigation, and I consulted lots and lots of people. We have 600,000 members nearly now. Of course, we have got some people who have been misbehaving in, in the party. And to pretend that's not the case is not, is not a right and appropriate and, and helpful to, um, to moving forward. So, um, so I'm giving you more than you asked for, and I hope you would, you know, if you get the chance to report that in the Jewish Chronicle, I'd be incredibly grateful, Dan, um, Daniel. Um, un, unwritten. So we talked about some rules. Now let's talk about the unwritten rule point. And I'm sorry for being so thick about um, the precept um, analysis before. Landlords, let's get ex explicit about landlords and tenants. Um, this is something that we feel very strongly about, particularly post-Grenfell. Okay? Housing is a basic human right. Shelter is a basic human right. It is not a commodity. It is not something to be the subject of speculation. It is as basic a human right as the right to free speech or fair trials. And, you know, and, this, and this is not the case yet in Britain and all over the world. And the Grenfell disaster is, just, is, is the most horrific example of that. But we see it all over the world after disasters and so on and so forth. You see, you know, after you, you know, you rebuild um, New Orleans after the floods, and even though so many people were in social housing, you rebuild the private housing first, etc., etc. And you've got so many properties in this city that are, um, that are sitting vacant that could house homeless people, including the survivors of Grenfell. Um, so we are going to rebalance, the, make no mistake, we are going to re rebalance the relationship between tenants and landlords. We are going to have rent control. We are going to make sure that all um, landlords ensure that the, um, that the housing is fit for human habitation. And I'm sorry that I was being a bit slow on the preset point, but, but I think it's really a power point you know, we need to redress that imbalance in the power relationship between landlord and tenant. It's not that you, know, you can have good landlords, but a good landlord under the next Labour government will provide decent accommodation for a fair rent. So I think, um, I think rent control is really important. And your other thoughts about being registered and so on. I mean, I would urge you to, um, to send your thoughts to John Healy, who is developing... Um, uh, our, our housing policy, but I, I, I completely agree with I think where you're where you're coming from on that on, on that question. Um, oh, and then the uh, and then can I be ignored? <laughs> and um, and the challenge of the you know the law and the politics. So could my advice be ignored? Theoretically, of course. Um, theoretically, all lawyers, I suppose, in the end, can 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 be ignored. You're, you're you're giving advice rather than making the decision. But of course, um, 
politically and constitutionally how appropriate that would be um, would very much depend on the gravity of this, or, or the gravity of the issue and the firmness of the of the advice. But that would be to me a more political and constitutional point rather than a black letter law point, because in terms of the actual legal position, of course, you know, clients, even even governmental clients can can take or leave the um, the advice of their lawyers, but which then um, sort of leads to your second point, because if it was serious enough your job is to resign. I'm, you know, if I were, for example, to give advice that a certain military intervention were unlawful or that a certain interrogation technique were unlawful or etc., 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 I think it would be my ethical duty to resign and not to go quietly. Um, I think that's incredibly important as a law officer not to change the advice for the convenience. Um, I think with these, I, you know, again, I don't want to, there's a danger of becoming pompous, and please forgive me if I'm sounding a bit pompous, but I think with lots of jobs in public life, and not even just in public life, um, you really need to think, you, need, you, you almost need to, to think about going as well as staying. You know, you need to be prepared to to take that kind of responsibility. And um, this is not the kind of job that you do um, forever anyway. Most jobs aren't forever, particularly in the changing economy. So I think doing the job well, but if necessary, going well, is, is incredibly important. And I, I would say a recent example of that kind of attorney would be um, Dominic Grieve, QC. Make no mistake, he was sacked from the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition for his advice about human rights. From the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition for his advice about human rights. He's a conservative. We disagree about so many things and we agree about so many things. So I would rather be that kind of Attorney General than so, so, so many others. And, and the law policy thing, no, it's not, you know, it's not that much of a challenge for me, but because I think I learned so much of my law in government. So I had to do this, at the, I had to do this in my late 20s. In my late 20s, I had to sit around a table and give um, controversial legal advice to Michael Howard and then Jack Straw. Um, and so I think that, in a way, was quite a good preparation. If I could do that in my late 20s, I ought to be able to stand up to a bit of political pressure in my late 40s. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes, one there. Hi there. My, na my name is George Deacon. I'm a student at UCL. I've heard it sometimes said that um, European law prevents the Labour Party from doing some things that it might like to do in government, or if it were in government. Um, and I wondered whether that was true. I mean, so I think this point is often made in relation to state aid rules, but maybe there are other points or other things that the Labour Party would like to empower with that power, but that it's currently prevented from doing so by European law. Would you mind talking about these? I th Sorry, yeah. Is this the last batch? I think this is probably the last batch. Anybody else? Well, well maybe, yeah, but there's some more. We'll, we'll round up a few if that's okay. okay shall we? Sure. So we've got that one. Uh, does EU law stop the Labour Party doing anything? Yes, man in blue shirt. Thank you. Hello, Owen Bocott from The Guardian. Um, I just wanted Goodness to under... me, I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> How could we miss it? Um, 
I was under Brexit. by the Jewish Chronicle and now Owen Bocock from the Guard. Who else, who else is yeah. lurking on the red benches? Owen, sorry. <laughs> uh, under Brexit, um, the international legal architecture in which Britain sits is going to change. Are you going to miss the European Court of Justice? Um, are you advising the government that uh, we should adopt a particular, we should carry on joining? Would you like to appear before and after court? Would um, I like to appear? How I do you think it will happen? Thank you. I think we might have three more, so we'll take them now, and then, um, then if, that's more than three, but if you, can, if you can keep them in your head or on your... Yes, you in the green T-shirt there. Just a quick one from me. Uh, how far do you think the Attorney General should be involved regarding uh, the process of redrawing from the European Union and the future of the UK outside the European Union? There was, some other, was there another hand around you? Um, there was you in the front, wasn't there? Man with glasses there. Um, you'll wait for the microphone if you, if you would. Thank you. John Plimsoll, just a, an interested individual. Um, and uh, just wondering what sort of role you have, if any, on advising and procedures in the House of Commons. Um, and I'm thinking of that particularly because during a debate on the Chilcot report, Dominic Greaves suggested that procedures for holding anybody in contempt of the House of Commons were probably not consistent with human rights legislation now. So it looks like there needs to be a change, but is it happening and is, would you have a role? Was there a hand that I, that I missed? Yes, there's one at the front. If we can take one more, is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering about your opinion on some recent events going on. Um, recently, the Home Secretary was accused of being in contempt of court. Uh, the government is also, there's an inquiry in the UN looking into the rights of disabled people. And it's, there seems to be a perception among vulnerable groups that um, even, even our, kind of, our kind of last defence of the, the legal system is failing us and the government almost seems like it sees itself as above the law. Um, how can we assuage those fears and prevent kind of Thank something you. worse happening, political violence perhaps, if we have no other recourse? Rather a lot there. Um, so, um, EU law, is it, is it a problem? Um, I was a Remainer. I campaigned for Remain. I, um, and I clearly didn't think that EU law presented a, a problem to, um, to Labour values, and I, I still don't. Um, I think, but we are where we are. And I'm a Democrat, and we are Democrats, and we, we, you know, we've, we've got the outcome that we've got. I think um, the concerns expressed in some quarters were probably um, about, um, about state aid, but I'm not even convinced that those concerns have been, have been fully evaluated. But the main point now is not a legal one. It's a, it's a political and diplomatic one, which is what is the relationship going to be between Britain and our EU friends and partners and other countries going forward? Is it going to be the, the deregulatory tax haven bargain basement offered by Mrs May and David Davis and, and Liam Fox? Or is it going to be you know, a, a progressive partnership um, with, which will be negotiated now? So that almost renders the Unfortunately, it, it, you know that, that, that's where we are. It'll be a matter of it'll be a matter of negotiation going going forward. But I was never completely convinced that um, with this with this concern that EU law was a, a particular problem for the kind of um, 
you know, the kind of um, investment in, um, in British industry and so on. Um, um, Owen, um, are we allergic to the EC? No, we are not allergic to the ECJ in, in the Labour Party, but, um, but um, it's the Conservatives who have this huge problem with, with, with the ECJ, and I'm afraid too many of them still with the European Court of Human Rights as well. And I know they've gone slightly quieter on that lately, but my fear about that, just to digress for a, for a moment, is that this Brexit mess has not lanced the, the boil of ethnic nationalism and xenophobia that exists in parts of the Conservative Party. And, and once you start trying to sate that appetite, you will find very quickly that it cannot be sated. And with, you know, the Brexit mess goes on and people aren't satisfied and then they attempt to go for the Council of Europe and the Convention on Human Rights as well. Um, and again, now going forward into, the, into what the relationship is going to be, I hope, under a Labour government, because then it will be a partnership relationship and not one of distrust, um, the precise nature of the court, whether it's part of the ECJ that is responsible for um, monitoring the, um, the new relationship or whether it's something else, um, I, d I don't know. That is, again, going to be a matter of negotiation. But we do not have the allergy to internationalism and to international courts that too many people in the, in the Conservative Party seem to have. Should the Attorney-General be involved <coughs> in Brexit um, negotiations? Of course. And I'm, and I, and I'm sure that, that Jeremy Wright is. I really hope so, because, goodness me, David Davis does not have... Um, a legal forensic brain, and I'm not saying that to be rude. Uh, you know, um, if you if you look at his sort of glor glory civil liberty campaigning days, he had his best moments in politics when he worked closely with Dominic Grieve, and one was the pugnacious street fighter, and the other was the forensic legal brain. So if um, if they're not involving Jeremy Wright constantly and armies of, of government lawyers, um, then their, their chaos is, is even more dangerous than I, than I think it is. Procedures in the House of Commons. I, um, who asked that question? Yeah, I was not aware of that. I, I, I've missed that, um, that comment from Dominic. I, I must go and have a look at that. I, of course, don't have... I, I wouldn't be the person advising Commons on their procedures. There are some very eminent um, speakers, council and so on, who would do that. However, if it became a sort of, if it became a, a political issue for, um, or, or, or an issue for potential legislation, then clearly my role would be to advise and work with um, shadow cabinet colleagues. And actually, I've just remembered Valerie Vaz is a lawyer as well, and she is the shadow leader in the Commons. So, yeah, if it came to if it came to a matter for for us to act. Um, whether as an opposition in the Commons or as a government, then I would you know, be involved in advising our side. But in terms of actually advising on, on parliamentary procedure, there are some very, very eminent um, um, and independent um, uh, non-partisan lawyers who do that um, in the Commons and indeed in the, in the Lords. Um, and finally, the, this, 
question, this, this terrible, terrible deportation in breach of an injunction. You know, when I was a, when I was a law student, or was I a pupil? Anyway, a long time ago, a long time ago, in the Jurassic period of, of modern British law and politics, there was a case called M, re M, you probably read it, that involved an asylum seeker being put on a plane in breach of a High Court injunction. And the Minister of State was, was, was summoned to court and, you know, and, and the... And, and the refugee had to be brought back, and I never thought that would happen again. And I was really, really staggered by this this, this story, and I've you know I've commented on it. And, and the bottom line is, you know, politicians in recent years, with their authoritarian arms race, have been very quick to lecture everybody about their legal duties. And you know everybody is a benefits grounder, or they're antisocial, or they're this, that, and the other. But but how about practicing what you preach? And why should any kid on a council estate respect the the ruling of a of a magistrate if you know prime ministers and home secretaries won't um, won't respect the rulings of, of of the high court or indeed of international courts? And this this has to stop. This is what I was trying to allude to at the at the beginning of this session. This has to stop. And, you know, there is no rule of law. There is no rule of law unless politicians respect it. The really scary thing is that judges do not command armies. You know, the rulings of judges only work, only have force, if the executive in particular obeys them. In other parts of the world, you know, things get so scary that judges get rounded up. So the rule of law is a rule of recognition, just like parliamentary sovereignty is a rule of recognition that judges respect parliamentary sovereignty. We want to see the, you know, we want to see reciprocal respect. And I think we are in a very, very dangerous place if um, if Amber Rudd and others don't understand what a serious breach, what a serious breach that was. Thank you, Shami. Well, I think that's the, all we've got time for this evening. Um, thank you so much for coming, and thank you for your really great questions. I thought they were really interesting and provoked some more really interesting um, and very candid answers. So would you join me in thanking... Um